me. But last week, Daniel was set to play that, and I cut him off. I kind of got this tunnel vision last week, getting ready to preach, and walked right up when he was coming up to sing. But I think the Lord said it for today, Daniel. It's in his hand. Thank you, my brother. How about the choir and Daniel and the band and Sean and every This really beautiful worship today. Wow. Each day, when I get up and think about what, what does God want of me, I want to have a handle that I can easily remind myself with. And one of the things I've been sharing with you over the last few weeks is a way of looking at, as a church, as a congregation, as an individual, as a corporate group who labors together and as individuals who labor individually, how do I approach each day serving the Lord as a believer? Well, I get up in the morning and I know that my greatest need is to know Him. I know that my greatest need is to know God. And so as we advance on a couple of slides here, the greatest need of every human being is to know God. This is the chief need I have. It's the chief need every human being has. And God has chosen to reveal Himself. He does so by several means. First, He makes Himself known by way of the creation. In its incredible glory, God makes Himself known. On our porch over the last couple of weeks, a couple of house wrens have begun nesting right outside of Laurel's window. And I don't know if you've ever seen a house wren, but he looks like a little sparrow that's been dipped in red paint. It's a beautiful little bird, and he's begun building, a, the, the little pair's been building a nest right outside on our porch up under the eave of our porch. And it's been beautiful and just a reminder of God's glory in creation and His beauty. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. So I want, every day when I get up, I want to set out to know God and use the means that He's revealed Himself, the creation. Also, my conscience. God is using my conscience and the work of His Holy Spirit and redemption in my conscience so that I may know Him, that I may serve Him, that I may be familiar with what He is like. My conscience sometimes condemns me or convicts me or reproves me. And I have to work through that with the Scripture and through repentance and through the knowledge of the faith I have in Jesus Christ. God also reveals Himself to us by the Bible. I want to get up in the morning and know Him in the Scriptures. I want to open my Bible and make it my first and chief pursuit in my day to know God through His Word. It is the perfect Word of the living God without error, and it is a joy to ingest. When Jesus was fighting off the temptation of the devil, after 40 days and 40 nights of complete fasting from food, Jesus was intensely hungered, and Satan came to him and tempted him to use his power 
for his own self and his own gratification apart from what God had for him, God, his father. And Jesus turned to Satan and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what he was doing is he was not only quoting scripture, but he was living out what the scripture says. Jesus had been filling himself through all of those 40 days with a personal, joyous filling of his own heart on his father's words. And so we get to know him through the Bible. We also know him completely through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect representation of him, the exact radiance of his glory. And we get the privilege of knowing God in human skin through Jesus. We also get to know Jesus through the church. The church has been given the task of bringing the knowledge of God to every person on earth so that we share it among each other to encourage each other to know the Lord. And then we take it to those who are far from him that they may know him. But he wants us not just to know him by these means, but to know him in these ways, these five particular ways, accurately. When we speak of, when we think of, when we worship, when we engage, when we relate to God, he wants us to do that with him accurately. That means in keeping with the revelation of himself in his word and in his son. So that the way that we talk to and about, the way that we treat God and treat others in light of God, is in keeping with an accurate understanding of who he is. God also wants us to know him personally. He wants there to be a personal interaction between us and him so that it's not just some inert being who's just up there, but there is a personal interaction. And in creation, you see the personal nature of God. When he creates human beings, he is breathing directly into Adam the breath of life. And so there is this very personal and very close nature of God in relation to us. Also, he wants us to know him savingly. The stories of the Bible, as God reveals himself, he reveals himself as a deliverer, as a savior, as a redeemer, as one who rescues us from our sin and our situations. God also wants us to know him intimately. A close personal relationship pictured in the Bible, husband and wife, parent and child. Sibling to sibling, God's revelation of himself is that he wants us in this personal saving relationship to relate to him at a very intimate level, an intimate level so intimate that the highest levels of intimacy in human interaction are used as illustrations for our interaction with God. The book of Hosea is the story of an unfaithful wife and a heartbroken husband who seeks after her in spite of her leaving and being unfaithful. And all of the story of Hosea is a picture of the intimacy that God desires with his church corporately and with his people individually, daily. So when I get up in the morning, I know that my first task is to know God and use the means... He's given me and to do it with these ends in mind so that finally, eternally, I will get to enjoy the knowledge of God. In fact, as I've shared with you over the last few weeks, 
Jesus summarizes eternal life by saying, and this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's John 17, 3. So how does a Christian life look? Well, it looks like a person who begins the journey of their day with a desire and a plan to know God through his word and through all of the means that he has provided for us. And to do so not in an impersonal, but a personal, intimate, rejoicing in our salvation way. And that should lead to conformity to the image of God so that I grow in his likeness. And that should lead for me to want others to know him so that I show others what he's like. So today we're going to talk about what kind of person or persons is God making himself known to? How is it that we were before knowing God as Christians? How is it that the world is apart from knowing God? And so what I want to do is introduce you today to the world to whom God wants to reveal himself. So let's land in Romans chapter 1, beginning there, Paul categorizes people into three general categories. I want to visit the first two categories with you because Paul matches them up together in Romans 1 and Romans 2. I want to talk about them and what they are like. And I want to help you and I understand how we are to approach others in introducing them to God, in making God known to them, and maybe a little bit about what we're up against in sharing what God is like to others, and what others were up against when they brought the gospel to us. And so let's take a look at these categories. Jump on over this slide and let's go here. Generally speaking, Paul refers to three primary categories of people based on how they respond to God's revelation of himself. We begin with two of the three categories, religious and irreligious. I want to give credit to Timothy Keller, who's done a very good job of simplifying these two categories. And so a few of the things I'll be sharing with you today come from some writings and some messages that he has shared that have helped me in sort of simplifying what it is that humans are pursuing in their religious activity and in their unreligious or irreligious activities. Let's look in Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 28, and we're going to look at these two categories. Now, the first category is found really all through Romans 1, starting around verse 18, and then culminating in verse 28, sort of a God releasing them to their own recognizance and how that's gone. And then he's going to pick up the other group in chapter 2, verse 1. So you'll see the irreligious represented in Romans 1. You'll see the religious represented in Romans 2. Watch what happens. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit 
to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, There were 21 different ways that this sinful life is described by Paul in Romans chapter 1. This is the life of immorality and irreligion. You can go ahead. There we go. This is the life of immorality and irreligion. Now, if you'll go into point number one you'll see that these two groups are separated by how they relate to the knowledge of God. Look in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Now there's a more um, rough but accurate translation that I could give you. Basically it says that they did not think it worth their time To think about God. They basically said, I don't think he is worthy of my consideration. I don't think he's worthy of the time it takes to ponder him. I don't think he should occupy any place in my mind. And essentially, the way that it translates out is, they did not see fit to hold God in their mind. In other words, the idea of God comes up to them and they say, you know, That's really not worth thinking about. And they just jettison it. They put it out of mind intentionally. We're talking about a willful rejection of consideration and pondering, meditation and reflection on who God is. This describes the heart of the immoral and the irreligious. The way that they've responded to the revelation of God making himself known through all of these means, through creation, through conscience, through the Bible, through Christ, through the church, is to disregard and to say that is not worthy of my consideration. And so the immoral and the irreligious, the way that they deal with the revelation of the knowledge of God, is to disregard, disrespect. And so they put that off to the side. Now he begins speaking about another group of people in Romans chapter 2. So let's pick them up here. How do they respond to the knowledge of God? Well, in verse 1 it says, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you, Who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. Well, who is he talking about here? He's talking about moral people. Religious people. Who look across society and see immoral and irreligious people. 
and judge them. They categorize them as some kind of reject, not worthy of their time, not worthy of their ministry, not worthy of their mercy, not worthy of grace. They look at them and they reject them. And so the moral person, the religious person, is the person who in their moralism or in their religiosity is categorizing others through judgment. Not through the knowledge of, I know that they're sinful and need God, but I know that they're sinful and I don't need them. And so there is a rejection of their humanity and their dignity and their value of having been made in the image of God. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's saying there are, generally speaking, three categories, two of which he summarizes here. The irreligious and immoral, what they do with the revelation of God is they set it aside and disregard it. Creation is an accident. Conscience is a benefit only through evolution. And the result is that it worked to preserve some kind of ability for humans to function. The Bible is just a group of tales made by man. Christ is nothing more than a At best, maybe a good teacher. At worst, a completely deceived man. And the church, well, it's a bunch of people who need a crutch. And that's how the immoral and the irreligious view God's revelation. But the moralist and the religious person is one who holds God in mind in a different way. What they do is they use their knowledge of God to try to prove that they're actually worthy of God's acceptance and worthy of God's favor based on their personal performance. So the way that they hold God in knowledge, the way that they relate to God's revelation, is they take what God has revealed and twist it To make themselves look good. To make themselves look acceptable, moral, upstanding, upright. And so what they're doing is they're manipulating the revelation of God for their own benefit to make themselves look as if they stand in God's favor. And so when Paul reveals these two groups... He's going to lay out that their fundamental need is the same. The moralist who relies on his or her religion to justify his or herself before God and people. And the immoralist who in their irreligion seek to gratify themselves are both in need of a redemptive work of God. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, he takes both groups on and begins to deliver truth to them. Let me 
sort of uh, unfolded a little bit from the book of Romans and then from the book of Luke. Come to point number two. These categories are further separated by how these people pursue two fundamental desires. Now, down in every human heart is a desire for justification. We want to be right. Just tell us, ask us, we'll tell you. We want to be right. We love to argue, we like to justify ourselves. Deep down in our hearts, we want to be right. We desire to be right. And that is the desire for justification. Down in every human heart also is a desire for gratification. We like pleasure. We were built for pleasure. We were made for pleasure. God designed and ordained pleasure. And so pleasure is God's delight and design. He made humans to enjoy it. But because of the fall, our desire for gratification is now warped and twisted. And we seek it in ways other than God. And so these two groups are going to go after these two things. And as they go after these two things, they're going to reveal something about their hearts. How do they do it? Well, let's go to the moralist. The moralist pursues justification of self in religion and morality so that he may be gratified by the opinions of self and others. Fill that in real quick. And while you're filling that in, I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 18. And when you finish filling that in, join me there in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a story, a parable, of two men who go up to pray. Now, the story is primarily representing the pursuit of the moralist, of the person who uses religion and morality to be gratified by the opinions of others. Watch what happens in verse 9 of Luke 18. And Jesus also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now notice that they trust in themselves that they were righteous. And then how did they look at others? What's it say? With contempt. They judged others. This is exactly what's going on in Romans chapter 2. It says the ones of you who look at others and judge them. Well, here's the story. Two men went up. Into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. Now he represents moralism and religion at its finest in human terms. The other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So this is a great picture of the moralist. 
The moralist is the person who is using their knowledge of God to leverage their self-righteousness. And they're using the revelation of God and twisting it to prove themselves or present themselves as being favored by God. So their angle on life is to keep the rules and prove that they are acceptable. Their angle in life is to do the religious thing in order that they may convince others that they are good and right and moral and acceptable by God. That's what they're doing. That's their angle. In Jesus' day, that was represented primarily by the Pharisees. There were other groups that were going the same vein, but the Pharisees were primarily the people who were using this religious moral angle to prove to others that they were good and right. Now, it's interesting that they're not just doing this so that they can tell themselves that they're good, which this guy is, he's congratulating himself in the presence of God. It's interesting that it says that he prayed thus to himself. I don't know if that's a little play on words that Jesus is using, because maybe Jesus is saying, obviously, he's not talking to God. Because if he was talking to God, this would not be coming out of his mouth. And so here is a picture of moralism. Now, in modern times, moralism infects religious organizations. It infects churches. It infects mission agencies. It infects goodwill ministries. Because there are a great number of human beings who are using the religious angle, trying to prove to others that they are worthy, and trying to prove to themselves that they are worthy of God's acceptance. Come with me to John chapter 5 and chapter 12 for a moment, because in John, Jesus reveals a bit of the motive that is beneath this moralism. At the end of this, notice that I put that they will be gratified by the opinions of self and others. This is the driving force in their justification. Look in John chapter 5, verse 44. Powerful statement from Jesus. He says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Now what, the, uh, what Jesus is saying here that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 is that what's driving them is the opinions of other human beings. They want to be accepted by their group. They want to be accepted by their clique. They want to be accepted by the other folks that they run in circles with and that this particularly infects us in religion and morality. And so this is driving them. It's drawing them and these opinions are what they're seeking. They want other people to commend them 
for their performance. And that's what they're after. Go to John 12. What does Jesus say here? As John records some interaction with Jesus, you hear the gospel message getting into the leadership of the Pharisees. And if you go down to verse 42 of John 12, you'll hear a shocking statement. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Jesus lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So what's under this morality and this religion is not God's approval, but man's approval. Self-congratulation and the congratulation of other humans. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is these people are just as lost as the most immoral people you will ever meet. One of the hardest things for us is the evangelism of very moral people. When we meet religious people from other sects, from cults, and they are very moral, It's hard for us to imagine that their gospel need is as desperate as the most wanton, wayward sinner that we'll ever meet. And the Apostle Paul, and following on the heels of Jesus' clear teaching, is making clear to us that part of the job of the church is the confrontation of moralism and religiosity. Because listen, it is easy to hide in a church pew. And I believe one of the most dangerous places to enter hell from is the pew of a church. Because the Bible says to whom much is given, much will be required. But sitting among us and sitting among congregations all over the world today will be people who are angling their moralism, looking down at others, justifying themselves by their religious activities and justifying themselves by the judgment of the irreligious and the immoral, wherein it is said, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that girl. And this is dangerous. And part of our responsibility as a church is to cut through the moralism, cut through the religion, and get to Jesus. Now on the other end of the spectrum are the immoral and irreligious. Let's go to that slide. Thank you. The immoralist pursues gratification of self in sinful pleasures and desires justification in the absence of God and the opinion of others. Come back to Romans 1 and look at their condition. In Romans 1 verse 28, 
We hear that they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gives them over to their own recognizance and they are self-destructive. But in that self-destruction, they begin to pat each other on the back. Look at what happens in verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is why many people with sinful inclinations feel drawn to a march that parades their sinful inclination. Because they feel through the presence of others that give hearty approval, a relief of the knowledge that their conscience is being pricked by their sinful activity, so they draw to themselves people who will cheer them on in their sinful behavior. And so they parade themselves and bring to themselves people who will congratulate their sinful Behavior. It's heartbreaking. But what's happening is they're pursuing both justification and gratification. The moral person's pursuing their justification through their morality and their religion and their gratification through the applause of people. The immoralist is pursuing their gratification in sinful activities and their justification in the applause of people. They're both trying to meet the same fundamental human need. I want to be right and I want pleasure. They're just going at it from two different ways. But they're trying to meet the same basic needs. And so churches wrestle with both of these. We'll talk more in the future about how we address these specifically. But the immoral person, what they need is to get God out of the way. That's why they want God out of any kind of setting. Whether it is an educational setting, whether it is a political setting, or whether it is even some kind of um, benevolent ministry to help human beings. They want to remove any reference to God from those things because the references to God encroach upon their desire to freely gratify their, their selves by their sinful behavior. So you have these two groups. And these two groups are working to get something. Gratification and justification. They're coming at it differently and this is the world you and I live in. It's the world we minister in. It's the world that we have been given the responsibility to evangelize. So when we talk about knowing God, growing in His likeness and showing Him to others, we have to go into it understanding that we're going in to face typically one of two mindsets. One mindset 
that is working very hard for gratification through pleasure and justification through applause. Another that is working for justification through morality and gratification through applause. What's happened is that they failed to see that God freely offers both. The job of the church is not to denounce justification. The job of the church is not to denounce gratification. The job of the church is to show, number three, that in the gospel, God gives us both. God is interested in making you right. He desires to justify you. He desires to put you into such a state where you feel that finally things are right on the inside. I'm right with my Creator. I'm right with the creation. I'm right with the creatures. I've been made right. God wants to gratify us. When Jesus comes on the scene, He doesn't come presenting Himself as the highlight of religious and moral activity. He presents Himself in gratifying illustrations. Water for thirsty people. He comes to a sinful woman seeking gratification through a train of men that she thought would gratify her and she would justify herself with her view of God. And he says to her, if you knew who it was who was talking to you and what it was he was offering, you would ask for what he has. He presents Himself as thirst-relieving, living, satisfying, gratifying water. He comes to hungry people and He feeds them miraculously bread and He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And if a man eats of this bread, he will be satisfied. He'll never hunger again. I am the good shepherd who loves his sheep so much that he would give his life in trade to keep them. He presents himself in gratifying ways. I am life. I am resurrection. I am light. He says all of those things. And He says and He appeals to our desire to be accepted, to be loved, to be satisfied, to have our thirst relieved, to have our hunger satisfied. He appeals to us in that. The job of the church is not the promotion of more religion and morality, nor is it making people feel comfortable in their immorality. It is to go to the world and say, we serve a God who can justify and gratify any 
human being. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is a group of people who through repentance from morality or repentance from immorality turn to God as the source of our justification so that we are made right on our inside and we get to rejoice in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and have obtained our introduction into the grace in which we now stand. Jesus comes to be our justification and on the inside to finally give us peace and make us right and cleanse our conscience. He does that by dying for our sins and taking upon Him all of the guilt that we're trying to relieve through the justification of morality or the justification of the applause of others in our immorality. He is coming to offer both. Psalm 1611 says, at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. God is the center and the source of eternal gratification, eternal pleasures, eternal joys. So when you and I speak, we speak in terms of. Of facing two groups of people while being a separate group. We face a group of people that live around us, among us, and are even in our own families. Who in their immoral, irreligious pursuits are trying to gratify their desire for satisfaction through sinful behaviors. And they're seeking to surround themselves with people who agree with them and applaud their immorality so their consciences will be somewhat relieved because somewhere down inside it says that they know that it's wrong. And others that we minister to are using religion, even Baptist churches, And they are leveraging their morality and their religion to prove to themselves that they are acceptable, to gain the approval of others that they are acceptable, so that they can comfort themselves with a kind of knowledge of God. But it is not in keeping with the truth. And so we have a big job because in the middle of that, we live out as a people who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So our rightness doesn't come from our own deeds or the approval of man. It comes from a pronouncement when God declares us righteous. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But we are also a people who are so gratified by the love of God 
so gratified by the acceptance, so gratified by the enduring eternal life that has been promised to us, that we will endure the hardship of ministering to both communities, where as Jesus ministered to those communities, there was backlash against Him for it. We will do like Christ and we will minister to those communities, not as religious Moral, not as irreligious, immoral, but as gospel people. Third category people. So I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And I first want to challenge you to ask you honestly before God, which category are you in? Not, not what I think. And then not even what... You might have surmised, but biblically speaking, where are you? Are you in church today because you've been leveraging morality for a great number of years? And you've been using some kind of church attendance, some kind of religious participation, some kind of moral lifestyle to try to prove yourself acceptable to God as a moral person And you've been using that over and over and over, week after week after week, praying prayers, reading scriptures, attending, maybe even teaching, maybe even serving, maybe even in ministry. But down in your heart, you know that what you've been seeking is to justify yourself. And your prayers and your thoughts are much like the Pharisee, looking down your long spiritual nose at the sinful people around you. You start saying things like, I'm glad I'm not like that trash. I go to church. I'm moral. I'm good. Is it possible that you've deceived yourself? And that the result is that you're really not a gospel person. You're just a moralist. And religion is just something you do to try to prove or make yourself right. I want to tell you there is a wonderful gospel for you. Jesus wants to forgive you of that moralism. He wants to save you and redeem you and make you gospel. And He wants to justify you not on your deeds, but His. Not on your righteousness, but His. He wants to do that now. And He freely offers that. Others of you are here and you're in the immoral, irreligious category. Maybe you attend because of a favor to a friend. Maybe you come because you just decided, I would try church today. Maybe it's just a hidden thing. But really, you're just steeped in immorality. And that's how you're trying to get your satisfaction and gratification. I want you to know that Jesus has something better for you. He wants to wash you, cleanse you, but He wants to fill you and satisfy you. He wants to be the pleasure forevermore. And He wants to give you that through the gift of Himself. As water to the thirsty, as bread to the hungry, as light to those in dark, as shepherd to the lost runaway lamb, as a door that opens and includes you, as resurrection that regenerates you. Jesus is who you need. Would you come to Him?
moralist, immoralist, religious, irreligious, would you come and today be gospel and find your justification in Jesus and your gratification in Jesus and be satisfied? Believer, would you take on the responsibility of evangelizing these groups and thinking it through what it means to appeal to both and being ready As the Apostle Paul said, giving offense to neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, being ready to minister among both categories. As God works in your heart, would you stand? Would you respond to Him?